All right, good morning. Well, uh, I'm in a series um, that I've called Foundational Truths That Transform. And we looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago, and we broached the subject of sanctification. Uh, sanctification is a big word. It simply means growing in Christ-likeness or becoming more like Jesus progressively over time. Uh, sanctification is something that takes a lifetime. Forgiveness of sins, justification happens in a moment. Sanctification happens over the rest of your life. Well, we're going to look at this passage that we looked at two weeks ago this week and at least one more week, maybe two, um, because this subject is so important, and I think this passage helps us to look at it in detail. Sanctification is a massively important subject, but I think often misunderstood, sadly. Um, it's assumed, some assume anyways, that one may have their sins forgiven um, and be justified through Christ, that means have the gift of righteousness given to them through Jesus Christ, and yet for their lives to largely be untouched in terms of personal devotion to Jesus and obedience to Jesus and a personal pursuit of holiness. Of course, we rightly celebrate the power of Christ to forgive our sins, right? We just sang of it. Only the blood of Christ can make us white and make us whole. But too often, we overlook that the sins which are forgiven are also to be renounced and forsaken and put to death. And more than that, we are also to put on new practices, okay? It's not just that we stop doing certain things, but we start doing other things. Paul uses the language of putting off the old man, put, re, having your mind renewed, and then putting on the new man. The old man refers to those practices that we need to be done with. The new man refers to the practices we need to put on and begin doing. Jesus not only frees us from the consequences of sin, but he also frees us from the dominion of sin, from sin's domination. J.C. Ryle wrote this in his book called Holiness. He said, we must be holy because this is the one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. In other words, Jesus came into the world to save a people and to sanctify those same people. And actually, sanctification is part of salvation. The New Testament, I think, makes this totally clear and explicit. It tells us in Ephesians 1.4 that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says that Christ died, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. In the great passage on marriage, Paul pivots and talks about Christ and the church. He says, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, that He might sanctify her. And Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself to redeem us <clears throat> from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, the only road that leads to eternal life 
is the road of sanctification. No sanctification, no eternal life. Without a robust pursuit of sanctification, our ability to bear fruit and be effective in glorifying God will be neutered. It will lack its power and potency. Apart from ongoing sanctification, the rich assurance that we long for, the rich assurance that we belong to God and He belongs to us, we long for this, we truly do, but without ongoing sanctification, it'll lack weight and reality. Reed's been covering, if you've been here the last several weeks when he's taught, he's, it's been amazing, he's been covering the last handful, last three, four chapters of Revelation, and he's entitled this series that he's been going through, Visions That Give Us Hope. Without sanctification, brothers and sisters, that seems unreal. It's not meant to be a yawn for us to hear about this eternal glory. Neither is it to be an escape for those who just want out of this world. It is the longing of every lover of Christ who's being conformed to his image to be with Christ. The last verse of our text, which we're not going to really talk much about today other than right now, um, says that those who are growing in sanctification will have the entrance into the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ richly provided to them. A rich welcome and homecoming. That's assurance. That's assurance. And how does this work? Well, the Spirit who is at work in the believer, enabling him to do what pleases God, also gives the assurance that what he's doing pleases God. Think about it. How could you have the rich assurance that you will be in heaven or that the new heavens and new earth will be your eternal abode if you have no savor for the beauty of true spirit-worked holiness now? What makes you think that you would even want to be there if you don't enjoy the atmosphere of heaven now? Here's the deal. You wouldn't want to be there. If we have no savor for holiness, we wouldn't want to be in heaven because heaven is going to be a holy, and don't get me wrong, an intensely happy place, but a holy place. God's there. Well, we must pursue it. We must grow in holiness. We must pursue holiness. So how do we do that? Well, two weeks ago, we looked at how God's grace and our effort intersect. You guys remember that from two weeks ago? How God's high-octane grace in Christ and our maximum effort converge. God gives all things for life and godliness. He gives us His great and precious promises. He gives us these things so that we may partake of the divine nature. In other words, that we may share in His holiness and experience the life of God in our souls. And so how are we to respond to this gracious giving of God? Well, it would be wrong to assume that since God gives so generously all things for life and godliness, that somehow it minimizes our effort. It's quite the opposite. It maximizes our effort. Verse 5 says, For this very reason, because of all that God has given us, 
And because he's given us all these things that we may share in his holiness. For this very reason, make every effort. And I might have stepped on someone's toes when I said, we do not let go and let God. Okay, that's not how we grow in holiness. We don't just let go and let God. We make effort. And it's not a zero-sum game. It's not that God gives 50% and we give 50%. God does all of his work. 100% of it, we do all of our work, 100% of it, and here's the kicker, all of our work is dependent upon God and his work. God works the miracle of sanctification and we perform the miracle. He gives all things pertaining to life and godliness and we act out all things pertaining to life and godliness. God works in and we work out and we work out what he works in. So this is What we're to do, by faith, we are to put forth maximum effort to grow. That's where we ended last time, okay? So what does this maximum effort entail? We're going to look at verses 5 to 7 in detail now, okay? Verses 5 to 7 tell us what this maximum effort, by grace, through faith, entails. Verses 5 to 7 says this. Andy read it just a moment ago. Let Let me read it again. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So make every effort to supplement. What does that word supplement mean? It means to give generously or to supply lavishly. It's an interesting word that came to describe a choir director in ancient Greek culture. You might wonder, what does this have to do with choir director and supply lavishly? Here's what, simply put, okay? A choir director in Greek culture was responsible for supplying everything needed for the choir, So the word became synonymous with one who supplies. Supplement your faith with virtue. Supplement to supply lavishly. William Barclay, who's a commentator, says the following about this word in relation to describing a choir director. He said it never meant to equip in a sparing way or miserly way. It means lavishly or willingly to pour out everything that is necessary for a noble performance. So, because of all that Christ has done for us, because of all that Christ has given us, we are to make every effort to hold nothing back but to lavishly supplement, to pour out everything that's necessary in order to grow in these qualities that are laid out here for us. There are seven of them. Actually, there's eight, but faith is just kind of assumed. And I think this is a sort of exhaustive list, not because we're unable to think of other virtues that could be added to it. I'm sure we can. But notice how the list begins and ends. Begins with faith, right? Supplement your faith with virtue. Begins with faith, and it ends with love. The list begins with faith and it ends with love. Faith is the foundation and love is the climax. Love is the culmination. Love is the the apex, 
Okay? Love is the goal. Love is the end goal. Faith is the foundation. But it begins with faith and ends with love. It almost seems like faith is assumed. And I think for good reason. Faith is what connects us to Christ, from which is the, who is, I should say, who is the root from which sanctification flowers and grows. Without faith, there can be no growth because there's no connection to Christ without faith. Faith is what unites us to Jesus, who is the true vine. It all begins with faith. Without faith, Hebrews 11.6 tells us, it's impossible to please God. Whatever does not proceed from faith, Romans 14.23 tells us, is sin. It all starts with faith. You must have faith. So, assuming faith, okay? Assuming faith, fixing our eyes on Jesus, all that he's done for us. He's washed us white as snow. He's made us whole. He gives us all things for life and godliness, all the things that we need to live a holy life. He gives us, and he gives us his precious and very great promises. Assuming faith, fixing our eyes on Jesus, there are seven virtues to be pursued from this text. Supplement, the first is supplement your faith, which is assumed, with virtue. Supplement your faith with virtue. The first virtue to be pursued is virtue. (laughs) I actually like the way the New American Standard puts it better. It says, um, in your faith, supply moral excellence, or supplement your faith with moral excellence. This is not a generic virtue. It's a very specific one that speaks of the quality of one's life that makes him stand out as excellent. Perhaps the best way to describe this in a succinct way is it is a moral zeal or a moral courage that leads to action. It's anything but a mere passive attitude. It leads one to take action. In fact, in ancient Greek literature, if someone was described as excellent or virtue using this word, it was usually connected with some heroic deed that they performed. Alexander McLaren, who was a, who's a, uh, was a Scottish minister in the 1800s, described this word, I love this, as manly energy. A manly energy, a masculine strength and, and zeal and energy. It's a moral power and courage and energy of soul in the exercise of one's faith. So su- supplement your faith with this virtue. The, eye is to, the idea is to, to supply our faith with the moral courage that is to characterize a Christian. Martin Lloyd-Jones lamented a condition that he saw in his day when he said the following. He said, is there not something languid so often in our Christian life and Christian activity as you contrast it with the life of the outside world? Is there not this curious tendency for the element of passivity in our conception of the Christian faith to predominate as if we regard faith as nothing but an attitude of waiting. 
A kind of lethargy and languor spreads over us, a curious kind of passivity. But that's not what Peter says. No, no, Peter says. Let your faith be energetic. Let it be vigorous. Let it be virtuous. Let it be alive. Stir yourself up. See that you are alive and alert, active and alert. That's what this is talking about. Supply your faith with this kind of virtue, this moral excellence, this manly energy. Remember Paul, when he went into the city of Athens and saw all of the idolatry there, right? He saw all these statues to these gods, and there was even a statue to an unknown god. And, you know, Paul, as he went through, he didn't say, man, this is interesting. He didn't kind of look at it and just kind of wonder at it. The scriptures say it provoked his spirit, and he made a beeline to the Areopagus to confront it. Remember the zeal of Phineas. The story of Phineas is not very politically correct, okay? Remember the zeal of Phineas when uh, an Israelite brother brought a foreign woman into the camp, which God totally forbade, and God brought judgment. He brought, a, he brought a plague upon his people, and thousands of people died. And it says that Phineas was filled with zeal. In other words, you know, Phineas did not go around trying to gain a consensus on what he should do. And he wasn't concerned about what was politically expedient or politically correct. He got a spear, and he went and killed that man and that woman. And the plague ended, and God praised him for it. Phineas could not stand idly by. Now, what would this look like for you and I? Well, we do not go grab a spear and look for someone to okay, hurt or anything. I would suggest you start close to home, like your own heart and your own home, and work out from there. Gideon, before God used him to, to, to lead the Israelites against the Midianites, what did he have to do? He tore down the statue of Baal at his father's home. So it would mean, for instance, chasing away worldliness in our own hearts and our own homes first and moving out from there. Supplement your faith with virtue. Then Peter says supplement virtue with knowledge. The second virtue is knowledge. We're to pursue knowledge, specifically divine truth. The moral courage that we're to exhibit and grow in must be informed by the knowledge of the truth. Our zeal, this energy, energetic faith that we are to have will only be as sharp as our understanding of truth is. So this is talking about knowledge of God, knowledge of his will, knowledge of who we are, knowledge of the reality of sin, knowledge of the gospel, knowledge of the world, knowledge that comes from the scriptures. Oh, how many have what Paul describes as a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. A courage to act must have as its foundation knowledge which is found in the Word of God. And I've noticed a curious thing, and I'm not that old, but I'm, I'm almost mid-40s. Wow. 
Um, I've noticed a curious thing that there are some who almost seem to prize themselves for not having solid opinions of truth. For not taking strong stances for what is true and what's false. In a sense, some prize themselves for being kind of ignorant. Of course, there's a certain kind of knowledge that puffs up, and usually that's kind of what people say is, well, knowledge puffs up. Yes, there's a certain kind of knowledge that puffs up, but a hunger to know God and to know Him as He has revealed Himself in His Word is not that kind of knowledge. I think God is more concerned about a lack of knowledge about a lack of knowing the truth. He says through the prophet Hosea, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. So we're to supplement our virtue with knowledge. Spare no pain or energy to grow in your knowledge of the truth. Which comes from God's word, the source of truth. Think of the treasure God has given us in providing us his word. There's never been a greater availability of the word of God in the history of the world. I mean, think about during the time leading up to the Reformation when, you know, the the scriptures were in Latin and almost no one knew Latin and almost no one had a Bible. Um, And when the Gutenberg printing press was was, was invented and then the Reformation, and people started translating the Bible into common languages. And people were so hungry to get their hands on God's Word. One of the the sayings that came out of the Reformation was, after darkness, light. They were in a dark period of time, and the light that came largely was the light that comes from knowing the truth. So supplement your virtue with knowledge. Next, supplement knowledge with self-control. Self-control, of course, is one of the fruits of the Spirit that Spirit produces in our lives. Uh, Another word is temperance. Supplement knowledge with temperance. It literally means to hold oneself in, to hold yourself in to not give in to every passion or desire, whether bodily passion and desire or emotional passion and desire. There's anything that describes the spirit of our age, it is a lack of self-control. People just letting it all out, right? Or just being true to who they are and whatever that looks like or, you know. It's... uh, People today are ruled by their emotions. I heard one person say that today people, now he's speaking generally, of course, but he says people don't think, they feel and emote. (laughs) They feel and emote. They have emotions. And oftentimes without exercising any temperance to discern the legitimacy of their emotions, like, huh, this strong feeling I'm having right now, is it legitimate? Now, to be sure, God gave us emotions. We're emotional beings. There's nothing wrong with emotions in and of themselves, but we need to remember that emotions make wonderful servants and cruel and terrible masters. Right? Every child 
really young and even when they get older, and every adult too, I suppose. But every child needs to be told from, the, from a young age that they can't live according to their feelings. If you want to stand out in Christ-like character, exercise self-control. Be a person who is disciplined and under control. Develop the ability to discipline your emotions, your mind, your bodily desires, your passions. There's so much wisdom in the Proverbs on this subject. Listen to Proverbs 16.32. It says that, now notice there's parallelism here, okay? So the first part and the second part, there's, he parallels things. He said, it says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Isn't that amazing? The one who knows how to rule his spirit is better, stronger than the one who can take a city. There's another proverb that says, the man, who, the man who cannot control his anger is like a city whose walls have been torn down. Open game for the enemy to come in and plunder. That's self-control. That's temperance. That's holding oneself in. Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 25 to 27. He said, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my... Actually, that, uh, actually, that's what one translation says. I make it my slave, but here it says, I, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Self-control in all things. Keeping watch over your life, your emotions, your passions. What's going on in your heart where your mind is wandering toward we all understand why Olympic athletes must exercise self-control in all things. I mean, in their training, in their diet, and their sleeping, and all of that. But how much more should we exercise self-control in all things? They're running for a, hopefully, a gold medal that they'll wear and get pictures taken of, and then it's going it's to rust and be eaten by moths and so forth, we are running and fighting for a far superior prize. We're running for an imperishable wreath, the approbation, the acceptance, the, the joy of our Savior to hear Him say, well done, to receive the unfading crown of glory. That's what we're competing for. So supplement your faith, or excuse me, supplement your knowledge with self-control. Next, Peter says supplement self-control with steadfastness. We need to pursue steadfastness or endurance or perseverance and unwillingness to quit when life is hard, when we endure trials of various kinds, which we will endure. But of course, as Christians, we understand that the persevering, the enduring that we are going through is toward a bright future. We do not simply bear things and endure things with a discouraged resignation, but with a bright and blazing hope. Amen? Michael Green, 
said the Christian's life ought to be more like the steady burning of a star rather than the ephemeral brilliance of a meteor. I love that picture. I mean, what's a meteor? Like, we love those, you know, those shooting star storms in outer space. We can go out and see all these shooting stars. There's meteors flying here and there. But it's just a moment, and they're gone. They're done. You can't see them anymore. He said our lives ought to be described like a burning star that's, that burns slowly and steadily for thousands of years, burning stars do, rather than a meteor that flies and you see the brilliance of it for two seconds. The Christian life is not a spectacular sprint, but a grueling and glorious endurance run. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we need to give ourselves with maximum effort to develop steadfastness. Hebrews 10.36 says, You have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. The finish life, excuse me, the finish line of this endurance run is the gates of paradise. Right? It's the end of our lives. It's the last breath of, of our life here, and then we take our first breath in the immediate presence of Christ. That's where we want to endure to. So supplement your self-control with steadfastness. And supplement, Peter says, steadfastness with godliness. Godliness, living a Godward life, we must practice living before the face of God, seeing the hand of God in everything, receiving everything from Him, and doing everything for Him. Godliness also carries with it uh, the meaning of the fear of the Lord. It's a reverence toward God. Now listen, this is true. Living, a holy reverence toward God will keep you and I from doing a thousand things that we shouldn't do. Because the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Godliness has to do with whose approval you're living for. Whose commendation are you seeking? Godliness motivates you to seek the praise that comes from God. Whereas worldliness is always seeking the approval of men, the approval of the experts, the approval of the elites, the the approval of the cool kids. But Paul says godliness is of great value both in this life and in the next. So supplement your steadfastness with godliness. Next, Peter says, and supplement godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. It's the Greek word Philadelphia, right? The great city Philadelphia is nicknamed the city of brotherly love. This is the kind of love that is the love of friendship. It springs from personal warmth and deep affection that friends have for one another. We are to develop this brotherly love. I think along with brotherly love is the idea of hospitality, right? Welcoming people into our homes and into our lives and into our hearts. Develop this brotherly love, this brotherly affection. Pursue this. Lavishly supply brotherly love to your godliness. Don't let your godliness kind of be a standoffish sort of thing, like I'm really reverent toward God and and other people don't want to be around me, right? But supplement your godliness with brotherly affection. 
And finally, supplement brotherly affection with love. This is a deeper love than brotherly affection, Peter talks about here. And this is where the Apostle Peter ends his list of character qualities to add. It's love. It's the Greek word agape, agape love. This is the culmination in terms of Christ-likeness. This is the climax. This is the mountaintop. Agape is is a uniquely Christian kind of love. It's a love of the will. It's a sacrificial love. We're to supplement brotherly affection with this yet deeper, more important, more profound love. Agape love. There are three Greek words translated love. One is phileo or Philadelphia. One is eros. Philadelphia, phileo is brotherly love. Eros is erotic love or romantic love. And agape. Unbelievers can express brotherly love and, of course, eros love. But it seems that these two forms of love are the ones highlighted in our culture. When people say love is love, Christians, as Christians, we ought to say, okay, well, let's define love. And when one does, often it amounts to nothing more than feelings or romance and eroticism. It's not agape love. Agape love is a love of choice. It's the kind of love that says, I love you and I'm going to love you and I won't stop loving you and you can't do anything about it. It's the kind of love that's expressed in the marital vows exchanged in a Christian wedding where you promise to love each other through, for better or for worse in sickness and in health, richer and poorer and so forth. Agape love is not mainly an emotion. It's a disposition of the heart, a commitment to seek the well-being of someone else at your own expense. Agape love is a self-giving love, a selfless love, a will of a love of willful devotion. In ancient Greek time, or ancient Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, this was a sign of weakness. For the Christian, this is the highest virtue to love like this. It's not surprising that the great, well, what's called the love chapter is all about agape love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love never fails or ends. Now, I hope you're connecting the dots here and seeing that this is precisely the kind of love that God has for us in Christ. God does not have eros love for us. That'd be weird, right? God, I mean, there's a certain brotherly affection. Christ calls us his friends. But most of the time when the, when the New Testament talks about God's love for his people, it is agape love. It's a love of choice. God's love for us is based on his unremitting commitment to love us and do us good all the way to the end 
of our lives and then into eternity. And we praise God for that. If the foundation of God's love for us was based on something in us, guess what, guys? We would blow it. Every day we would. And he would cast us away. It's interesting. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Moses is giving the, the, the law to the people of Israel, and, and he says to them, he's like, he kind of bursts their bubble, he says, God does, not, God does not love you. He didn't set his love upon you because you're so big and great, because guess what? You're not. You're little and insignificant. But he loves you because he loves you. That's agape love, kind of love that gives and gives and sacrifices for and doesn't give up. God loves us this way. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we are to pursue this kind of love. We're to pursue growing in this kind of sacrificial love which gives and seeks the good of others. Well, we made our way through all those virtues, all right? Take a deep breath here, okay? Um, I kind of don't like usually trying to blow through that much material. But real quick, verse 8, briefly, says that these qualities are to be yours and increasing. Just want to just mention one thing. In other words, you don't arrive and say, yep, I got it, like the rich young ruler, right? <laughs> what do I need to do to have eternal life? Jesus said, obey the commands. Which ones? And Jesus numbered him and he says, I've done it right? And Jesus is like, okay. Um, we don't arrive, but we're always pursuing. Paul said in, in Philippians 3, I've not arrived. I'm not perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. And that's what we're to do. We press on. We strain forward to be more like our Savior. And remember, it all starts with faith. Faith is the foundation. Faith in the one from whom every spiritual blessing has been given to you. Faith in the one who provides you with all things for life and godliness. Faith in the one who gives us all of God's promises. So make maximum effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Brothers and sisters, this is the path of sanctification, which happens to be the path of bearing fruit and being effective and glorifying God, and happens to be the path that leads to the smile of your master and hearing his words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Amen? Let's pray.